Hi, welcome to Dr. Dave on Call. I'm your host, Dr. Dave. Welcome back. This is uh, episode four in our video podcast series. Today we're going to discuss something a little bit more morbid um, and a lot more serious in terms of both the COVID-19 pandemic and just the gestalt of life in itself. Um, Many of you uh, know that I'm a subspecialist in allergy immunology. I run a uh, small nonprofit uh, in Chicago, as well as a, a free asthma and allergy clinic too as well. Um, but for many years, I've also been um, a physician at a local hospital um, that serves a specific at-risk population. And they have been recently, in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic, asking staff members to come back to the hospital and um, step up in this pandemic and help out. And they've asked us to meet us specifically to um, run an overnight COVID floor service. So it would be just managing um, solely COVID-19 patients uh, in a non-ICU setting. And I'm seriously considering doing this. So my responsibilities would be to admit COVID patients or persons under investigation um, for the COVID-19 virus um, to the hospital in a a non-ICU bed setting, and I'd be directly responsible for their treatment and care. So I'm I'm thinking naturally as a physician, subspecialist who knows a little bit about um, the pathophysiology of COVID-19, uh, and seeing what this virus has done to just previously healthy people and then to people who have other comorbid uh, conditions, I naturally think, you know, um, what can I do to help out? But more importantly, I, we'll talk about myself now, to be candid. Um, I'm 39 years old. I have no pre-existing health conditions. Uh, I keep in good shape, you know. I do some cardiovascular activity. I do a lot of yoga. I try to meditate. Um, been recently lifting some weights. Doesn't really show too much, but um, so I'm, I'm I'm pretty healthy for my age. Um, and I see I've seen a lot of cases that people who were younger than me, who were healthier than me, end up getting COVID nineteen, and next thing you know, they're on a mechanical ventilator, and they're not doing well. So. That naturally makes me scared, thinking about, you know, coming into the hospital and and being directly involved in COVID-19, as well as persons under investigation for COVID-19 in their care, which is another true testament to, you know, all of our healthcare workers and professionals who are in the front lines, too, and what they're doing every day. Um, I'm sure they think about this as well. you know, we are at a really critical phase. We are, um, you know, on that pandemic curve, as we talked about, steadily going up to, you know, this apex, you know, that topside value of number of cases and also the case fatality. And it's high in New York City, in Louisiana, here in Chicago. And so um, naturally, when you think about these thoughts of going to the hospital and getting extremely sick, 
you know, you, you start to think about your mortality too. And, and let's just back up too, because again, the large majority of COVID-19 patients who are ill will have mild to moderate symptoms that they can ride out at home. You know, whether it's fevers, their body aches, um, you know, cough, you know, most of these times, they're, the, the large percent of time, they're going to stay at home. And they're going to ride this out, and their immune system is going to kick in, and they're going to beat it. Um, and, and that's important to note because we've talked about it, how COVID-19 enters our healthy cells in order to hijack our own cellular material, right, and replicates and goes to other healthy cells and infects them and does this billions and billions of times. So if you're going to the hospital with symptoms of shortness of breath, um, you know, unremitting cough, chest pain, fevers, what, what's happening is that the virus is affecting you a lot more than if you were one of these patients who are staying at home. So why is it affecting you a lot more? Well, we talked about other comorbid conditions, meaning conditions that you have uh, going on or pre-existing conditions. If you had diabetes or cancer or a chronic lung issue like asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, these are things that can affect the way you fight the infection, the virus, the COVID-19 infection. So we know that if you are having these comorbid issues that the virus can affect you a lot worse. You know, it, it can really knock you down quickly. And that's what we're seeing. So when these patients come into the hospital with these severe symptoms of COVID-19, they're likely having a high, what we call viral load of the COVID-19 virus. So the virus, again, has replicated numerous times in billions and billions of cells to where it's in their bloodstream and it is replicating fast. And again, because of this, the higher the viral load, the more chance of them actually spreading and transmitting the illness to other people. So that crosses my mind when I see these patients and knowing that they're really, really sick, they likely have a high viral load. So the likelihood of it transmitting to me is there. But again, if you're implementing good personal protective equipment and protocols and you're gowning up appropriately and making sure that you're taking and implementing these hospital protocols of how to use PPE, the risk of exposure is really low. But it's still there. You think about it. Um, I think about it. So, you know, I, I think about, well, what would happen if I got COVID-19 and, God forbid, I really became sick? So COVID-19 replication in me to the point where I had to go to the hospital. And I needed you know, supportive care and assistance to, to help me. And it got me even thinking more so, what if I was so sick that I had to go to the emergency room because I was so short of breath that I couldn't breathe? And I, I go there and the treatment team is seeing me and they're doing all these, you know, labs and imaging and procedures on me. And basically, I'm breathing so much 
at a huge rate because I can't oxygenate my blood appropriately that there's this decision to say, look, Dave, we think that a mechanical ventilator is the absolute necessity for you if you want to, if you do not want to die. And so being put on a mechanical ventilator, that's scary, you know? Um, and, and that's why I started to think about this concept of advanced directives. And do I have my advanced directives in place? Um, you know, and, and making sure that I had all of this, all of this taken care of before I actually start to go on the front lines and, and, and treating COVID patients. So let's talk about advanced directives. That's, that's, a, that's the purpose of the show. It's pretty morbid, but I think it's important to discuss these, um, these important decisions that you as a person have the autonomy to make about your own healthcare. So what are advanced directives? Well, they're written decisions that you prepare that express how you want medical decisions to be made in the future should you become really ill and you can't make these decisions for yourself. That's essentially what advanced directives are. Um, some people don't realize, but if you are admitted to a hospital, there is a law. It's called the Patient Self-Determination Act. And it's federal law that requires that when you are admitted to a hospital, that the hospital has to has to furnish this information to their patients to say, hey, look, you're here and you have the ability to make your advanced directives known to us. Now, obviously, why we're talking about this now is important in terms of timeline, right? So ideally, you should talk about advanced directives when you're healthy, like if you're not in a critical situation when you're trying to deal with just your own illness um, and that you are already under a terrible amount of stress that you shouldn't be wondering, hey, what happens if I die in a very critical situation? That's, that's, that's really overwhelming. So it's really helpful to talk about advanced directives when you're healthy. And to be honest, these are great discussions to have not only with, you know, your family, but also with your provider too. And I think that a lot of a lot of other doctors should really put this to the forefront of when you have your routine like general year yearly exam to just talk about it and check in, you know, and see if anything has changed in your belief system um, about your advanced directive. So let's let's get into what they are because some states are different, but I, I'm going to talk specifically for Illinois because that's the state I reside in, and I'll be honest with you about what I would like to have in my advanced directives, both what I'm going to put in paper, but I'm going to just share with you on air right now. Right. Um, and obviously it's a, um, you know, it's a videotaped, it's a video podcast, so it's on record too. So, and then this can certainly change, right? I can change this whenever I see fit, but I'd like to just share with you my advanced directives during this COVID-19 pandemic and the reason why I'm doing it is because I'm planning to go into the hospital to take care of COVID-19 patients and the risk of, you know, exposure, it's very low, but it's there. And if I get sick, I want to have something in place. 
So let's walk through my advanced directives just as an example and to talk about it um, that a lot of people don't really do in more of a public forum like this. So I think this will be helpful. All right, so part one of our advanced directives, I'm actually on the Illinois Department of Public Health website because they give a very nice outline of the different types of advanced directives. So let's first start with the healthcare power of attorney. Um, so basically, the healthcare power of attorney, it lets you choose someone to make healthcare decisions for you in the future if you're no longer able to make these decisions for yourself. So you're called the principal in the power of attorney form, and the person that you're choosing to make decisions is called the agent, okay? So you're the principal, and the person you're choosing to make these decisions for you, if you can't, is called the agent. So your agent essentially makes the healthcare decisions for you if you are no longer able to make them. So long as you're able to make these decisions, you will have the power to do so, right? So if you're of mental and uh, if you're of mental capacity, right? Um, and that you can make your healthcare decisions for you, for yourself, then the agent has absolutely no say. You are of complete control of your healthcare and the decisions that you want for yourself. But if you can't make these decisions for yourself, then you, your, your agent that you've designated will make these decisions for you. Now, there are a couple of caveats that you should know. Firstly, the agent you choose can't be your healthcare professional or other healthcare providers. And ideally, you should have someone who is not your agent witness your signing of the power of attorney, right? You want somebody to attest to say, hey, look, I've let this person, the agent, know, and you have a witness to do that. So that's important, right? Um, so who's making your decisions for you is the agent. Um, and so let's kind of talk about, um, you know, what the agent would do. So they would be required to follow any specific instructions that you give regarding your care that you want provided to you or even withheld to you. So let, let's, get in, let's get a few examples because I think it would help. So you could say, well, hey, I want all life-sustaining treatments provided in all sorts of events. You can also stipulate when and whether you want life-sustaining treatment ended, too. Um, instructions regarding refusal of certain types of treatments on religious or other personal grounds, whether you want a blood transfusion, whether you want, um, you know, things like that. So if you are of certain religious backgrounds, um, you can refuse that, too. So you can stipulate that. Um, also, too, you can have instructions regarding um, anatomical gifts and disposal of remains. So let's apply this to me. I am uh, an organ donor. And we can talk about, you know, if I, if, I, if I accidentally die, I would like my organs to be donated to help those who may need them. I will say this, just based on my experience and treating patients who um, have succumbed to various illnesses too as well. Let's say, for example, I get really sick by COVID-19 and I ended up uh, dying. Um, after you die, you contact 
um, the gift of hope. The gift of hope uh, makes an assessment uh, in terms of, or if you can donate your organs or not. You basically say the cause of death, and then you know they have this algorithm that they go through in terms of your the the, the clinical causes of your death. Because COVID nineteen is a, a viral infection, which would likely be my cause of death it may be very hard for me to donate my organs. Um, but again, outside of that, um, right now I'm healthy, 39-year-old, no pre-existing conditions. If I got into an accident and I died, I would want my organs to be used for donation. So that's me. Um, so moving on with the healthcare power of attorney. Again, I'm the principal. The agent is the one that's going to act on my behalf if I can't do that. Again, you can cancel your power of attorney at Anytime you can tell someone or you could cancel it in a written form. Um, and it may be worthwhile too to have a backup agent to act. So if the agent, the first agent can't um, or doesn't take action, you'll have a backup person to do so. Um, so, so just remember that too. Um, let's, so that's a healthcare power of attorney. Let's go down to a living will. So a living will basically tells your healthcare professional whether or not you want death-delaying procedures used if you have a terminal condition and you're unable to state your wishes. So it's different than the healthcare power of attorney. So how is it different? So a living will only applies if you have a terminal condition. And so what's a terminal condition? So terminal condition means that it's incurable, and it's an irreversible condition such that death is imminent and, and that the application of any death-delaying procedures serves only to prolong the dying process. Pretty morbid, right? I mean, that is, that's, that's amazingly um, raw, you know, to talk about these sort of things. So you can use a standard will, living will form. You can write your own like specific directions if you have about death-delaying procedures you want or you don't want. Um, you have to have a couple people witness it too as well. And this is one thing that I'm working on right now with my attorney because we're in a pandemic, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. We are uh, in a shelter-in-place order. So typically you have, when you need to execute these legal documents, you need a notary. And you need two witnesses to be in the same room. But right now, we are physical distancing ourselves. So they are working on a way that I can actually facilitate this uh, virtually and to have, um, you know, video capability and, and scanning so we can do that, I guess, live, but virtually, if that makes sense. So we're, we're working into it, working on that. I think that this is unprecedented time. So we're trying to figure that out so I can actually f do this. Um, in terms of my living will, um, I don't want any. I don't want any death delaying procedures if I have a terminal condition, um, and we'll get into that because I, I want to talk about more. Um, the do not resuscitate order, and the and the uh, the practitioner orders for life sustaining treatment. So let's talk about that. So a lot of talk has been. COVID-19 in your lungs, short of breath, you can't breathe on your own, and you need a mechanical ventilator. So what is a mechanical ventilator doing? Basically, 
if I can't breathe on my own and oxygenate my blood so that um, I can live, a mechanical vent- ventilator can be used to act as that machine that helps me oxygenate and breathe for me. Now, there are many people who elect to not resuscitate using a mechanical ventilator for, for, for breathing support. And that is their perfect right to do so. Um, and, and that varies by different age groups, by their, um, you know, religious beliefs. It's a very personal decision whether or not they choose to have a do not resuscitate order enacting it or, um, you know, stating that they would want everything in terms of um, specifically uh, extreme measures to save their lives. So let's talk about that. So basically, a DNR, do not resuscitate order, it's an advanced directive that says that CPR, so cardiopulmonary resuscitation, cannot be used if your heart and or your breathing stops. And it can also be used to record your desires for life-sustaining treatment. And what we mean by that is, let's say your blood pressure is low and that you require medications to help sustain your blood pressure. Um, If your heart stops beating, do you want medication to help restart your heart? Um, Things like that. So it, it is important to, you know, review the do not resuscitate orders and see what decisions you want to make. So there are some people who choose to enact choose to enact resuscitation but don't intubate where you can give medications to restart your heart or to help augment your blood pressure but we but they don't want medication or they don't want a tube to be inserted down your throat to help you breathe so there are different nuances of that um so let's talk about this order as it relates to me so i am 39 i'm healthy and I also have, you know, two relatively small children. They're, they just turned eight and six. So they have quite a long life to live, and I personally hope that I have a lot more years to live too as well. So because I'm in relatively great health and I have quite, hopefully quite a number of years to live, I would want extreme measures to be attempted to save my life. So... I would want cardiopulmonary resuscitation done to me. I would want all of the medications given to me uh, to augment my blood pressure or to restart my heart. I would want a tube to be inserted into my throat and connected to a ventilator to help me to breathe. I would want all of these. I would want uh, extreme measures to save my life because I think that my outcome could be where I recover completely back to where I was before I entered the hospital. 
Now, I, I'd like to just briefly talk about, you know, this concept of healthcare capacity right now in the pandemic. And I'd like to put it on the record too. Let's say our healthcare capacity gets breached and that we have limited resources of mechanical ventilators. Um, and that I end up going to the hospital really sick, hard to breathe, and the team says, Dave, we feel that you need to have a mechanical ventilator for your, um, for your oxygenation and support of you breathing. Okay, do it. So now let's say my condition really worsens, and I've been on the mechanical ventilator for some time, and that the number of COVID-19 patients is just astronomical and really stressing our healthcare system to where we don't have that many ventilators anymore. And I've been now on the ventilator for, let's say, 14 days, a long time. And my condition has not improved. In the meantime, too, my, let's say, neurologic status has deteriorated, right? I'm not, you know, if my brain was deprived of oxygen or I have other medical problems happening. My kidneys have shut down and now I'm on dialysis and my heart has been strained and I have, you know, my ejection fraction or how well my heart is, you know, pumping out the blood is really poor. And the doctors come and say, look, his condition looks really bad, almost irreversible. Well, then I don't want to be on a ventilator then because my ventilator that I'm using is possibly being used on me with really no clear outcome of me getting back to where I was to sustain a quality of life that I would enjoy and that I could be there for my family and my kids and, um, you know, and be there as a husband and a father and to have a reasonable quality of life. So in that case, I would want to withdraw my care. And that's what I'm stating to give my ventilator to somebody else that could potentially save their lives. So that's where I'm at in terms of the do not resuscitate order. So again, do CPR on me, give me the medications, give me the breathing tube and the ventilator. But if my condition worsens on the ventilator, for I've been on it for many days and my prognosis is so grim, that I cannot achieve a quality of life that I had before my illness, then I would want to withdraw care. And what does that mean? Well, that they would unhook me from the ventilator and that eventually I would die. So we're talking about advanced directives, right? So we talked about the healthcare power of attorney, right? So you are the principal and the agent is the person who's going to be making your decisions if you can't. We talked about the living well um, and how it differs from the uh, healthcare power of attorney, right? So it's if you have a terminal condition that's incurable or irreversible, that living will essentially says, you know, that whether you want death-delaying procedures in a terminal condition. And so right now that's not applicable to me because I don't want any death-delaying procedures if I have a terminal condition. Um, there's one area, too, about mental health treatment preference, and we can talk about that. It's called the Mental Health Treatment Preference Declaration. So essentially says that if you want um, 
a specific treatment, electroconvulsive treatment, or psychotropic medicine when you have a mental illness and are unable to make these decisions for yourself. Um, if you prefer that, then you can elect to receive those, and I do. If it's available and I am suffering from a mental illness and ECT is available and medicine is available, I would like that. It also allows you to say whether you want to be admitted to a mental health facility for up to 17 days of treatment. And if that's an option for me, I would choose to do that. So that that's another part of the Illinois um, advanced directives. So in talking, and I think one more time we should review the, the do not resuscitate order. Uh, basically, it's outlining whether or not you want heroic measures to be done to save your life. And it's a very personal decision for everybody uh, behind in terms of their age, their living situation, their religion, their relationship status, you know, their family. It's really, really important. And the reason why I'm discussing these things is because, well, one, when you're faced with your mortality, you think about these sort of things. And um, I'm considering picking up um, to help out at our at a local hospital to run a COVID service at night. And I think that I'm seriously considering doing this. And so if I am going to do this, I want to make sure I get all of my um, advanced directives in order. And I encourage you to do that too as well. Um, these are conversations that are tough that you have to think about, that you have to involve your loved ones with. And it's important that we talk about these issues Preferably before you get sick, when you're healthy. These are, these are options to think about so that they're not decided upon in a really stressful environment uh, when you're sick. So that's what I'm doing today on camera um, to you, the audience. And um, I will be doing this with my attorneys as well to try to complete this virtually too in this pandemic so we can get this uh, sorted out before... Um, I go back to the hospital. Uh, if you have any questions about this, please feel free to reach out to us. We um, are on uh, Twitter, Dr. Dave on Call. You can email us at hello at drdaveoncall.com. Call us, leave us a message, 877-DR-DAVE-5. And uh, we look forward to talking with you more about COVID-19 and how it relates to our well-being, our health, and uh, we appreciate you tuning in.